The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. So, uh, last week we started talking about mindfulness of the body. And for those who'd like additional sort of study material, you can follow along. We're um, in some ways paralleling Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart. And this is chapter 8. He's talking about mindfulness of the body. And tonight I want to use a discourse from the Buddha that you can get a hold of too if you'd like. When I Google capital M N119, I get this discourse, mindfulness immersed in the body is how uh, Tanisro Bhikkhu translates this uh, title for this talk of the Buddhas. But you can get a hold of it just by putting in something like MN119. MN stands for the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. It's a collection in the Pali Canon, the language that the early teachings of the Buddha were recorded in. Last week, I we began with the body scan meditation during the guided sit. Tonight, we did the mindfulness of breathing. Before I began to talk about this discourse, I thought I'd just check in about the beginning part of the mindfulness of breathing instructions. There are actually 16 instructions the Buddha gives. We heard the first four tonight, to be aware of the breath, in breath, out breath, to be aware of it with enough continuity that we're noticing whether it's long or short. Because you know how it is. We can sort of like be aware we're at common ground or be aware it's dusk, but not, not be so connected with the experience to know much about it. So one is to just be aware that we're breathing in and out, and then to sort of, uh, sort of up the ante, I guess we could say, to, be, to invite a, a greater clarity or presence, then, and in, in, in particular, a greater continuity, then to be aware, well, is it a long breath or a short breath? Is it a rough or a smooth breath? Not that we should have to control it, but that the presence that simple, clear, relaxed presence is there to such a degree that there's a knowing that it's long or short or smooth or rough. That's the second instruction. And that's just, like I mentioned, just to invite greater and greater continuity, less distractedness. And then with the greater and greater continuity, the Buddha, the third instruction is, to recognize that as we're breathing in, and there's an awareness of breathing in, that right there in the awareness of the breath coming in, there can be an awareness of the whole body. So that it's like when we're really present with the breath or any experience, and the mind is in balance, there begins uh, to arise a sense of wholeness in the attention. Because when we're relaxed and clear, even though we're using the breathing process to become, in a sense, relaxed and clear, then that relaxation, that clarity, allows there to be an inclusive knowing. So we're knowing the whole body breathing in, knowing the whole body breathing out. And that inclusivity, that wholeness of mind, is really calming, or 
we could say it heals the agitated, distracted, scattered mind, begins to heal it. And that healing we call calmness or tranquility. And we begin to notice it. We start to feel how the body's settling down. It's like now the mind that knows is knowing the body, but the way the mind is knowing the body, it's not agitating the body at all. The relationship of the mind that knows the body isn't disturbing the body. So the body naturally will settle down because nothing's provoking it. If I worry, if I do all kinds of different things with my mind, my body then reflects the sort of agitated nature of my mind. But when my mind is in this inclusive, clear, relaxed relationship, knowing the breath, knowing the body, the whole body begins to settle down. So any questions about those instructions tonight? And like I mentioned, it's just the beginning, you know, the first four out of 16 instructions. But in a way, it's an important threshold to be able to go from our ordinary, distracted, agitated, dull, restless minds and to begin this healing process that we call samadhi, where we go from being dis the mind being dispersed and distracted and scattered to the beginning of calm, the body settling down. And the more the body settles down, the mind starts to reflect that, that settledness in the body and begins to experience tranquility. And then joy arises, or rapture. The energy begins to build in the mind because the body's so calm and still, then the mind, the energy in the mind begins to build. And that energy of the mind just keeps, in a sense, being uh, cycled into greater clarity or greater brightness. So it's a real positive feedback mechanism as we relax the body, settle the body down. So nothing, then I'll go, okay, Margaret. Um, about, uh, I find myself like struggling not to control my breath. And I guess I don't know how to do that, like how not to control it, once I'm focusing on it. Yeah, it's not easy for a lot of us. <laughs> but remember, the intention not to control the breath doesn't mean it won't feel tight and controlled. So the instruction isn't, you know, don't let the breath feel tight and controlled. The instruction really is don't intentionally try to control your breath. And even that instruction, you know, it's, it, it's more of an art than a black and white instruction. You know, for example, probably everybody in this room would benefit from doing 10 or 20 years of pranayama. You know, in yoga, some of you know this, there's breathing exercises as well as different postures. Now, generally in Buddhist breathing practice, we're not controlling the breath. But some of our breathing patterns are so much uh, a reflection of our crazy agitated minds, and therefore also our crazy agitated bodies, that, you know, 
if we just sit down and watch the breath, it's really uh, disturbing because the breath is reflecting the tension of the mind and body. And so it feels so appropriate to want to control it. And so, you know, there are appropriate ways to control the breath. Like often, some of you know who've been coming, I often suggest, you know, as soon as you sit down, compose your body, then take as much time as you need to do some deep breathing. And for some people, it means just doing three or four breaths in a very conscious, intentional, in a sense, controlled way, where we're slowly, in a relaxed way, filling the lungs to their capacity, what you might call in yoga practice, deep three-part breathing. Some of you probably know that practice. And then exhaling. And, but for some people, three breaths isn't enough. And just to kind of get settled down, they might want to do it for 10 minutes. A controlled, deep, full, relaxed breathing practice. But the more we practice living in a mindful way, the less of that sort of prerequisite work we'll need to do. You know, in a perfect world, starting in kindergarten, I say this often in my intro class, starting in kindergarten, human beings would have been taught to relax. And by the time, you know, we're in third grade, we'd be relatively competent. By eighth grade, we'd be pretty competent. And then to graduate from high school, you'd have to be really skilled at relaxing, releasing mental and physical tension. And so a lot of us come into the meditation, the Buddhist meditation practice, but we're not very good at relaxation. When I first, I, I got really inspired by the teachings of the Buddha, and I just, I was totally gung-ho. And then I, as I started to be more mindful, I realized how incredibly uptight both my body and mind were. And I did you know, I did six years of very intensive yoga practice, breathing and physical posture practice. You know, hour and a half at a minimum a day. I was, I was in kind of intense, intensely into the practice. And I really saw like uh, how just my residual tightness of body and mind was getting in the way of pursuing the teachings of the Buddha, of, of kind of insight practice or seeing things as they are. Because as soon as I tried to see things as they are, it was like I would be hit with a lot of mental and physical tension. But I wouldn't stop this practice. You know, what I would do is do what you can in your life to become really good at relaxation and develop this practice at the same time. And you can use your mindfulness to, be, uh, to support your practice of relaxation, just like your relaxation is going to support your awareness practice, to support each other. Yeah. I feel like that's a really vague answer and that there's some middle step that's missing between being consciously breathing in and out and being aware of the breath and at least to me, I don't know, it, it's that answer, while very, while very thoughtful, mm -hmm. also is a bit frustrating. Yeah, because, well, so the first part of my response to Margaret, maybe I didn't kind of expound upon enough, but so sometimes the breath is going to feel tight and controlled, but when we look, we're not intentionally trying to control the breath, but it still feels tight and controlled. So then we don't need to do anything about it. There's nothing wrong with a tight breath or a controlled breath. 
It's just something to know as it's going in. Like, that's the second instruction from the Buddha, right? I mean, he calls it long or short, but probably he means that just notice the texture of the breath, however it is when you're breathing in, and notice the breath as it is as it's going out. Like, notice something about it. Don't be superficial. So knowing the breath coming in, and it's tight. Knowing the breath going out, and it's tight. So we're just not intentionally controlling or tightening the breath. So it doesn't, the, uh, the settling down of the body and the settling down of the breath happens through not intentionally needing things to be other than they are. So if we feel responsible for making the tight breath not tight or the controlled breath not controlled, that's controlling. You know, it's just it's just participating in this habit of controlling. And controlling by its very nature is tight because it's saying this isn't okay. I need to make it better. Now different teachers give different instructions here and what I'm, I guess the point I'm making is there are some things we can do to relax the mind and body. And it's totally appropriate to become skilled at those things. But be careful about mixing it with this practice. Now, once you get, once you really understand this, like you really understand how to, as best you can, I mean, sometimes you can't do much, but to whatever degree you can relax the body mind, you have some good skills, right? And you understand what mindfulness is, that bare, simple attention that simply knows how it is. Then you can then you can move between those two practices without confusing them. But what tends to happen is because it's our nature already to want to fix things, we'll never do this other practice. And we'll just assume that when you hear the instructions of mindfulness, that it's just about fixing things. But mindfulness isn't about fixing things. It's about understanding things as they are. So mindfulness of breathing isn't about fixing the breath in any way. It's about transforming our understanding of what the breath is or what breathing is. We're transforming the view in the mind. All of the mindfulness techniques are about transforming the view. But it helps to be relaxed, you know, and that's kind of what I think people you're pointing to. Yeah, Margaret. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking I'm not breathing. I'm not breathing. I better take breath, otherwise I'm going to pass out. So would you say just just say, oh, I'm not breathing. Let's see what happens. <laughs> well, that I would definitely experiment with that. Yeah, I mean, I would. You, the beginning part of the practice, of course, is to compose the body and mind as much as you can. And when we get caught and lost in thought, then in a sense we're beginning the practice over again. So it's really appropriate to one more time consciously you know, take a couple moments or maybe even more than a couple moments to recompose the body and mind, to practice relaxing and settling down again. And then pick up the mindfulness practice after that point. So every time you kind of got yourself in a knot, you know, then come back. And in that coming back, we're in a sense, I mean, when there's some momentum, the, you don't actually have to drop the mindfulness. As soon as you recognize you've been lost in thought, that's a moment of mindfulness. Returning to the breath is a moment of mindfulness. 
But if you're tied up in knots, like you've been caught, the mind's gotten identified, you've been disconnected, not aware for a while, then that tension needs to be released. So take a deep breath, adjust the posture if it's gone, you know, sour, and then begin again. But while you're breathing, a lot of the times, the breath is going to reflect the general tone of the body and mind, the general tone of the life that's being lived, and it's going to be tight. It's going to feel controlled because that's how it is now. And we don't and to assume that that's a mistake that needs to be fixed can be a chronic cause for more tension in the mind. To reject our life as it is, including to reject the breath as it is, is a cause for tension. And how do we know things won't settle down? Simply through the act of mindfulness. That radical acceptance, that radical clarity, oh, it's like this. It's just this breath coming in. Tight breath, long breath, smooth breath, rough breath. It's just this. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. It's just this being known. It's just being known. To be patient and accepting, just like we have to do with physical pain in sitting. I mean, that's such a rich place for insight to be with the discomfort in the body. Imagine if our instruction, the instruction was, when your body hurts, when you have painful sensations, fix them. You know, that wouldn't be much of a mindfulness practice. You know, that's, so it's the same thing with breath. Why do we feel like we have to make the breathing process other than it is? So in the first few moments of sitting, fine, work with your breath, work with your posture, do what you can to settle down, or even better, before you sit, do that. You know, take a hot bath, do some yoga, do some deep breathing practice, take a walk around the lake, you know, so that when you get to your meditation cushion in a perfect world, you'd already be pretty, the mind body would be pretty balanced and integrated. So then it would be relatively easy to begin the meditation process, the mindfulness process. Yeah, Rebecca. Is it? Well, um, it partly it depends on the intention in the practice. And it, and, and, it, and it partly depends on how the mind understands the experience, the pleasant experience of tranquility. So in a more pure mindfulness practice, where we're not necessarily trying to absorb the mind or de uh, kind of have a goal or an aspiration to achieve deep states of absorption or concentration, then the different wholesome qualities that arise in the breathing, mindfulness of breathing process, we want to be aware of. We want to recognize the tranquility. We want to recognize the rapture as a mental quality arising in the present moment. You know, and to be really interested in that.
Well, the, the, yeah, when the mind gets identified with the tranquility, it, then the habit energy kicks in. And what, are we, what is the habit when things are really tranquil and nice? Is, oh, I don't have to do anything <laughs> because it's really tranquil and nice. So the whole system, the whole kind of spiritual intelligence just shuts down because like, I'm where I want to be. I'm chilled out. I don't have to pay attention anymore. I don't have to be present. I can go unconscious. And so that's the, that's the defilement or the um, unwholesome tendency that tends to arise when tranquility, calm, uh, rapture arises, but we're not mindful. The mind isn't mindful then, and then the practice falls apart because what allowed the tranquility to arise isn't functioning anymore. It was the continuity of mindfulness. So I'll go into this uh, discourse. Um, Kayagata Sati Sutta is the Pali title for mindfulness immersed in the body. So one day, a bunch of the monks got together after their morning meal. They get up early and they go collect their food. And then they come, they often will eat together. And then there may be a Dharma conversation. And so this morning, the conversation began with something like, isn't it amazing, friends? Isn't it astounding the extent to which mindfulness immersed in the body when developed and pursued is said by the Buddha, the one who knows, who sees, the worthy one, rightly self-awakened to be of great fruit, great benefit. And this discussion came to no conclusion. So they just sort of, yeah. You know, talk, but they didn't maybe have a deep enough understanding. Later that afternoon, the Buddha came, and he asked what they had been talking about, and they told him. And so the Buddha decided to give them some instruction, and this is what he said. And how is mindfulness immersed in the body developed? How is it pursued so as to be of great benefit, or I'm sorry, of great fruit and great benefit? And then he gives six meditation instructions for the body starting with mindfulness of the breath. At least I'll just read the beginning of this. So there is the case where a practitioner, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building, which is kind of like the meditation space we hear, have here, you know, we keep it pretty empty, sits down folding one's legs crosswise, holding one's body erect, setting mindfulness to the fore, always mindful, one breathes in, Mindful, one breathes out. And then he goes through the four instructions that I gave during the uh, guided meditation tonight. And then he ends each of these six meditation instructions with the same few sentences. He says, and as he or she remains thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memory and resolves related to the household life, the worldly life, or abandoned. So by that, I think the Buddha means, you know, when he says ardent and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the worldly life are abandoned. Worldly life, household life, is kind of a, a substitute phrase for this syndrome of reacting to pleasant and unpleasant experiences with attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. So. That's the definition of household or worldly life. As an ordinary human being, 
our life is filled with attachment to pleasant, aversion to unpleasant. So having set, that's what gets set aside. Sets, that is what gets set aside. And then he continued, and with their abandoning, one's mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner, how a monk, develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So that's the first instruction, mindful of mindfulness of breathing. And in a way, although this practice can be, take us all the way to the freedom, to the release of the heart that we really seek, in a way, it's also a great place just to get a sense of what mindfulness means. Like how to be, how the mind can be clear and relaxed, not controlling, free of uh, agendas, and just simply know the breath in and out. You know, it's a relatively easy uh, present moment experience to learn this particular way of relating. Remember earlier I said that the whole path is about right view. Normally our view is um, we are, um, act, the mind is actively controlling, you know, like if it's a pleasant experience, we're actively trying to keep it, make it last, get it more. And if it's an unpleasant experience, we're actively trying to get away from it. So mindfulness is exactly not that, right? It is exactly that full presence, like we're still there with the present moment, but instead of the syndrome of pushing away what's unpleasant and grabbing a hold of pleasant, it's there, but the only thing we're there with is awareness, not the pushing and pulling of attachment and aversion. So we learn it with mindfulness of the breath. And then the second instruction, the Buddha says, further, when walking, the practitioner discerns, I'm walking. When standing, one discerns, I'm standing. When sitting, one discerns, I'm sitting. When lying down, one discerns, I'm lying down. Or however one's body is disposed, that is how he or she discerns it. Seems simple. So first we just learn what it is to be mindful with the breath. And then we can in any moment now, we're all sitting, right? In any moment now, there can be a very simple experiencing of that truth. Sitting is like this. Sitting is being known. Not being for sitting or against it, but just that simple recognition. And in that moment, when, I'm, when this mind is simply aware, oh, sitting is like this. Sitting is being known. In that moment, my mind is free of agitation because there's no agitation involved in knowing sitting. Now if I hate the sitting and, and I hate the pain in my tailbone or the ache in my knee, then that's that. That's called aversion. You know, or if I really like the sensations, like Rebecca was pointing to, you know, just when there is some concentration, when there is that collectedness or unification of mind, it feels nice. And it could be a grabby quality in my life, not wanting the sit to end, not wanting to have to get up. It actually happens. <laughs> so we learn it sitting, then we learn it, you know, walking, standing, lying down. We try to develop continuity 
find different, as many moments during the day as possible. And that leads us to the third instruction that the Buddha gave. So first is mindfulness of breathing, then mindfulness of the four postures, it's called in the Buddhist tradition, right? Sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. And then the third is mindfulness of daily activities. So the Buddha says, furthermore, when going forward and returning, one makes him or herself fully alert. When looking forward, looking away, when bending, extending one's limbs, when carrying one's outer cloak, upper robe, one's bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, when urinating and defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, uh, waking up, talking, and remaining silent, one, rema- one makes himself, herself, fully alert. And then he repeats that same paragraph that he repeats at the end of each of these six instructions. And as she remains thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the household life, to the pushing and pulling, right, of aversion and attachment, they're abandoned. And with their abandoning, one's mind gathers and settles inwardly, samadhi, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So now we learn it with the breathing. We learn to do it with the postures. We learn to do it during all the daily activities. Still, we have to uproot some basic views of the body. Like one of the views of the body is like we've got this whole package. When I think of my body, you know, I think of this thing I see when I look in the mirror. And the body, the Buddha rather, he gives us a different view. Now he's using concept. He's going to give us... Uh, a thinking reflection. We use our thinking mind to cultivate a different view of the body. So normally we think of the body all wrapped up neatly in this skin bag. And it looks like this. And so he says, well, okay, let's look at it a different way. So we transform. We're, we're, We're directly assaulting the conventional view not because this other view is correct or more correct than the conventional view, but we have to see that the conventional view is just one perspective. It's a constructed view that we've gotten very identified with. And so he says, furthermore, the practitioner reflects on this very body from the soles of the feet on up, from the crown of the head on down, surrounded by skin and full of various kinds of, and uh, Tanisro Bhikkhu translates this word, unclean, asuba. But it really means uh, un- unclean qualities or qualities that are not worthy of attachment. Because when we wrap the body up in the skin bag, then we can get very attached to it. I mean, it looks sort of orderly and, and nice. I mean, we're conditioned to see at least some bodies as being sort of attractive. And um, But that tendency to be attracted to bodies really falls apart when we de- deconstruct it. And so that's what he does. You know, full of various kinds of things not worthy of attachment, not worthy of identification. In this body, there are hair heads. I'm sorry, head hairs. <laughs> body hairs. Nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, gorge, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, skin oil, saliva, mucus, 
fluid in the joints, urine, right? Just as if a sack with openings at both ends were full of various kinds of grain, wheat, rice, mung beans, kidney beans, sesame seeds, husk rice, and a person with good eyesight pouring it out were to reflect, this is wheat, this is rice, these are mung beans, these are kidney beans, these are sesame seeds, this is husk rice. In the same way, the practitioner reflects on this very body from the soles of the feet on up, from the crown of the head on down, surrounded by skin and full of various kinds of unclean things. Now you may think, oh, this is just silly. But that's because we haven't done this practice. And I haven't done it a lot, but I've done it enough times to know it really has an effect on the mind. One of the things I've done, and you can do, my wife, uh, Wynne, uh, teaches anatomy at McAllister College sometimes. And, uh, and uh, so she's got all these great YouTube videos that you, anybody here, if you just uh, Google something like autopsies, human autopsies, you'll, you'll find these really great things where people are taking apart, you know, you just see them cut open the body and pull out all the, you know, they've got a big, big table and they put the different things out. And I watched that, I've watched them several times. And it makes this kind of practice easier and more powerful to, to actually do that. So you just sit down, and now you're thinking, and you're using the mind's capacity for imagination. And you imagine placing the different parts. And you might as well use this list, or you can come up with your own list of 32 or whatever number of body parts you want to do it with. And you take it out, and then you just c contemplate, oh yeah, this body, I mean, it's we're not making any of this up. This is actually how it is, right? This body is just this collection of various systems put together. And when it functions well in harmony, we have something called life. And when it doesn't work well in harmony, then there is no life. And you can do it over and over again. It's a very, actually, very powerful concentration technique because it takes a lot of mental clarity and continuity to do this. You can't be distracted. So there are advantages to these practices that involve a lot of imagination and reflection because the mind likes to think. Now we give it something to think. But in doing this, it's not doing all the other things it does. you know. And you can get concentrated doing this practice. And remember, we do this practice not because this is the truth. We're just 32 body parts. Any more than, you know, I'm this whole thing. Both are just relative perspectives. But we have to puncture some holes in the fixed notion that this is who I am, this complete package wrapped in the nice skin bag. So check it out. I would, ex I would encourage people just to try it at least a couple times. And don't you don't even need to do it in a formal sit. You could even do it as you're just sort of, someone's driving you somewhere, just break your body apart. <laughs> you can put it back together if you need to. And notice how your attitude of bodies begins to change. You look at David over here, and you realize, oh, there's a heart beating just a little bit inside of that, that, uh, that shirt he's wearing, that sweater he's wearing, you know? Just a couple, there's a beating heart. And then the lungs, you know? And the diaphragm, and that sort of, amazing intestine, you know, that long, what is it, 30 feet long or something like that. And, you know, and the food comes in and it gets transformed and it comes out as fecal matter. And just all these 
things that we tend not to associate with us. And isn't that amazing? That's called delusion. You know, the fact that we don't, even, even people who like are in the medical world somehow don't associate that truth with themselves. So the first thing the Buddha suggests here is like with this kind of meditation, we start to loosen up the fixed way we view the body. Loosen it up. So then we begin to, we're open to other ways of viewing the body. And that's what he does with the next meditation instruction. So, so far we have the breath. We have the four postures. We have mindfulness of daily activities. And then we have the deconstruction of the body. So breaking apart the notion of the body as a complete system. One nice, tidy package. And imagining it as another way. And, and holding that as equally true from the complete package view. Not one better than the other. They're both just different ways of looking at the body. And then now that we're kind of, we understand that it's, there are a lot of different ways to understand the body, then he gives us another way. In Buddhist tradition, it's called the four element meditation. And they use earth, fire, wind, or air, and water as the four elements. But the, that's just because that was sort of their system of science. It's just four ways to divide up the experience of physicality, the tactile experience. And I'll, I'll, I'll describe it. And this is something that you can do, and it's a very powerful way to understand the body. So instead of understanding the body as a complete package, me, you know, I'm the skin bag, or in terms of 32 body parts, here's another way, which is the body is simply these four elements being known. And so the four elements, earth, now this is no longer conceptual. Now we're moving in back into the, uh, what we call Dhamma, the way it is. So earth, the term earth element just refers to the actual direct moment to moment experience of hardness and softness, roughness and smoothness, heaviness and lightness. So those are the six qualities that we mean by earth. So, you know, a Buddhist meditator might say, boy, the earth element is really obvious right now. And by that, he or she would mean really noticing a lot of hardness or a lot of lightness or a lot of heaviness or a lot of smoothness or a lot of roughness, a lot of softness, right? Because isn't that, that is what we experience. That's part of what we experience in physicality in the sort of actual experience of the body. So that's one part of what we experience. It's not the whole thing. We also experience temperature, don't we? Coolness and heat. And that's fire. The fire element is just being aware of temperature. Like when you breathe in, you know, if you're feeling your nostrils and you breathe in, you can really tune into the coolness of the in-breath, can't you? And then the relative warmth or heat of the out-breath. Because, you know, the air gets warmed up there inside the body. And then when we breathe out, and you can really notice, not paying attention to the touching, because the touching would be more like hardness, right? Or it has different qualities. But, but now we're focusing on the coolness or the warmth. And you can feel these elements everywhere in the body, not just at the nostrils. You can notice whether the knee is warm or cold. Or you can feel the heat in the knee. Or you could train your mind to notice the coolness in the knee. 
So you can see both hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heat, coolness. And then we have air or wind. And that's just pointing to what we call the pushing. Like when you're breathing out through your nostrils, you feel that sort of pushing quality of the breath. You can feel it in a lot of different places in the body. And you can learn, you can train your mind to feel it everywhere. And the other aspect of the wind element is that supporting, like when you're sitting upright, and just the sort of being held in space, that supporting quality, that's also referred to as the air element or the wind element. And then finally, water is the more subtle of the four elements. So when you feel your body, just the actual physicality now of the body, there's a sense of its cohesiveness, like it's all one thing. That's the water element. And then the other aspect of the water element is a kind of flowing, a sort of a, a movement, like, like a wave-like movement in the body. So you get them all? Earth, fire, wind, water. Okay? But basically, the four-element meditation is we're creating a different view of the body. Not as a complete package wrapped up in skin, not as a sort of deconstructed into 32 parts, but as a moment-to-moment experience of these different elements being expressed, being known. So it's really, it's like a, a different way. Imagine if we really lived on that kind of raw level of physicality, just the knowing of the, the rawness of the physicality, the roughness, the smoothness, the heat, the coolness, the heaviness, the lightness. And we weren't confused by the concept of the body as sort of a complete package or there's a heart, lung, a this or that. So that's the four element. And then the Buddha has to uh, give us an instruction, a body, a mindfulness of the body instruction that helps deal with the notion that like now we might feel like, well, I'm alive. I've got this life energy in the body, right? That's part of the physical experience. Like when you put it all together, the body has this feeling of being alive, of being functional and responsive. But it won't always be that way. And so one of the, the deluded notions established in our habits is that this feeling of being alive in the body, like in the body having this life energy, that it's always going to be this way. But is it always going to be this way? No. Uh, some of you might know Malva Cohen, a longtime community member, quite active in the community. Her husband, who's only three, maybe four years older than me, had a heart attack on Friday night and died in his sleep. She's got two young kids, and uh, yeah, just a terrible tragedy. So the Buddha says that in order to be able to be mindful of the body, we have to disrupt this deluded notion that whatever life energy we have won't always be this way. And the way we do that is we actively remember, recall that fact. And there's a sort of a corpse meditation. You might think it's really grim or even morbid, but it's just the truth. I mean, it's the truth before we had 
sort of ways of prettying up the body that at the funeral homes or burning them and putting them in a nice jar with putting the ashes in a nice jar. So it's just looking at the natural decomposition of any body once it dies. You know, initially, what happens to the body after a day? Some of you know our chair of the board, Rini Howard, um, died uh, about a year and a half ago. And she stayed with us the last three months of her life with my wife and me. And a lot of the community here at Common Ground took care of her when she was in hospice. And and after she died, we kept her. We asked her ahead of time. And we kept her at home for, I don't know, 35 hours or something like that. And a lot of the community members were able to come. Most Many people knew her and came and just sat with the body. And you could notice, you know, changes. Even in that 30-hour period, we could notice quite a few changes in the body. And already, you know, because she had, you know, in the dying process, the body already begins to fall apart quite a bit, of course. But just to kind of get that whatever happened to Rini or whatever happened to anybody you've ever known that has died, that's going to happen to this body, too. And to really disrupt the notion, the sort of deluded notion, what doesn't happen to me. Some of you know in the Hindu tradition, the yogic tradition, there's a great epic called the Mahabharata. And the Bhagavad Gita is part of this um, ancient epic. Another, It's kind of a sacred text in, in Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita. Anyway, in the Mahabharata, it's this sort of amazing family, spiritual epic. And... Uh, one scene, one of the main characters is asked, what's the most amazing thing in the world? And he says, the most amazing, and this guy is known for being smart. And he says, the most amazing thing in the world is that although everybody's going to die, they imagine they're not going to die. You know, they live as if they're not going to die. And so just to kind of get that. So I'll just share a little bit of how the Buddha invites this reflection. Furthermore, as if he or she were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, one day, two days, three days dead, bloated, livid, and festering, she applies it to this very body, this body too, such as its nature, such as its future, such its unavoidable fate. And then just goes on. So instead of three days, then a little bit longer when the ravens and the other creatures would be feeding off of it, you know, and there's maybe some meat left on some of the bones. And then a couple of weeks later, when the bones have really been cleaned off, you know, but they're still connected by the tendons. And then a little later, when they're not even tendons, just sort of bones scattered about. And then later, when the bones start to fall apart. And then finally, nothing left but dust from the bones. And to really see that whole process. And just and at each stage, when you bring it to mind, this is how the meditation works. So this, again, of course, is a visualization. We're thinking and using the powers of imagination in order to free the mind from its attachment to another view. So we're skillfully using this constructed view. As we imagine the decomposition of the body, it's an imagination. It's not the truth right now. But it is very useful in disrupting this arrogant, deluded notion, not me. And so when we learn to integrate that, 
then it frees the mind up. We really understand the fragility, the insecurity, that just is the truth that comes with being in a body. So can we live with that truth? We may think we can't, but actually you might find it quite liberating to make peace with the inevitable decomposition of the body, whether you decide to have it cremated or you want your loved ones to bury you in the ground, bury the body in the ground. But whatever you do, one fashion or another, there's going to be this decomposition process. So let's just own that. Let's just integrate that into how we relate to the body. So these are the six uh, instructions the, the Buddha gave. Mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the four postures, mindfulness of daily activities, deconstructing the body into the 32 body parts so we break down the notion of the body as a complete system. The four elements, so learning to experience the body, the physicality in a very direct, immediate way in terms of earth, air, fire, water. And then finally, using the corpse meditation to break down the notion that whatever life, health, energy we have, that this is temporary in the body. And that's how we, you know, these are the six practices that if we really become a devoted student of these reflections, these meditations, we will transform our relationship to the body, our view of the body. The actual body may not change, but the understanding, the way we relate to the body will radically shift. And this this whole path that the Buddha taught is based on the very simple notion that when one's view comes into alignment with the truth, the way it actually is, the experience is freedom, the unshakable release of the heart. And we could say the opposite. When one's view, one's understanding, one's way of being in the world is not in alignment, not doesn't have anything to do with the way it actually is, then inevitably there will be a lot of stress, a lot of tightness, and a lot of bumping up against life because the view isn't in alignment with the way it is. So I'll leave it here. Um, we don't have much time for discussion, but there's time for a couple comments or if anybody has a question, anything come to mind from the talk tonight. And again, you may. this is a pretty accessible discourse, so if you want to get a hold of it, try Googling it. If you have trouble, send me an email. I'll send you the link. Any comments or, yeah? No, my name's Aaron. I just want to remind you a story that when I was, when I was like a really young kid, I remember like being really scared, trying to imagine what it would be like to be dead. And I uh, went out to talk to my dad, and it was late at night, and he said, the trick is you just don't think about it. And so from then on, I just continued to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it scared me so much that like I would have like panic attacks. I remember when I was really young thinking about it, and it was really scary. But after a while, like, I'm thinking about it, I realized that I had no idea what it would be like. And whatever I can imagine, I try to imagine nothingness, and I try to imagine all these things. But I couldn't imagine what it would be like. And then in seventh grade, I was in the hospital, and I was close to dying, I thought. And I remember this, this point of, like, just being calm and understanding, not even being scared at all. And ever since then, I just haven't been scared of it at all. It's just kind of like this part of my life. It's, I have no idea what it would be like, but 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what you did, one way or another, is you did your version of the corpse meditation. You know, through your own willingness to invite in that truth that we all, this body will die, and to uh, abandon the need to bury it and to not let it into consciousness, you let it in and you worked with it. And to some degree, at least, you made peace with it. So it isn't as much of a weight in your life as it might be for many other people. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Aaron. Yeah, I forgot your name. Is it Mike? Yeah, I was also thinking, uh, I was in Rome and the caption months monastery, they use the, the bones of the monks in this little tableau that's yeah. around the little scenes. And you get, you see all these scenes and you get to the very end of this little plaque and it says, uh, where you are, we once were, where we are, you will Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a powerful meditation, kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, most real, uh, most authentic spiritual paths somehow use the um, experience of death consciously as a, a spiritual force, something that really triggers or supports insight, the transformation of you. Because so much of human suffering is based on some kind of denial of that truth. Thanks for sharing that. I think we have to leave it here. If, oh. if it's quick. Oh yeah. I mean, if, if people want something that you know, think about death is heavy because you know, like deny it. Um, David Sedaris wrote in uh, the New Yorker, and it's also anthologized in one of his books, an essay called Memento Mori. He has a skeleton in his apartment uh, for his uh, partner, um, and the skeleton just all of a sudden starts telling him, "You're going to die." David tries to, you know, dust the skeleton and tell him to create a TV, and the skeleton just says, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, there's, there's a monastery, International Thailand. Uh, Nils has practiced that when he was a monk. And uh, they had, was the skeleton hanging there when you were there? Yeah, and the fetus. Yeah, and the fetus. Yeah. Um, my first day, uh, Nils said, why don't you go and it's her skeleton and she Uh-huh, yeah. And it, and it was given to the monastery because it's a very useful reminder. It kind of another interesting story. Uh, Common Ground was uh, uh, confused about what building to buy, this building or the Templar building over on Cedar Avenue. So we had a purchase agreement on both buildings four years ago. Is it four years ago? Maybe two years no, four years ago. Yeah, four years ago. A little bit more than four years ago. And uh, it, it, we ended up obviously buying this one. But in that building, one of the real draws was up in the attic was a skeleton, a real skeleton, not one of the plaster of Paris ones. And uh, in the purchase agreement, we put, we get the skeleton. <laughs> it was, it's also right across from the oldest cemetery in the Twin Cities, the Pioneer Cemetery. Some of you know that by Lake Street. It was, it's right across the street from it. So we could do our walking meditation in the cemetery. But we're here instead. <laughs> so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.